the pro-democracy movement in Israel and the hypocrisy at its heart. The clock approaches midnight on TikTok as Washington threatens to ban it in the US. And predatory surveillance practices in Greece. But who is doing the watching? Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and analyze how news gets reported. When the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, put plans to overhaul the judicial system on pause, his hard-right government was teetering. The country has seen the biggest wave of demonstrations in its history. There's been a general strike. Senior military officers are threatening to quit. Netanyahu even fired his own defense minister. Protesters continue to hit the streets, saying the prime minister's climb down is nothing more than a stalling tactic. These protests have had a polarizing effect on Israeli society, and you can see that in the news coverage. Mainstream channels that had an all-too-cozy relationship with Netanyahu and some of his far-right allies have recast themselves as defenders of Israeli democracy. There's also a Fox News parallel at play in the form of Channel 14. It's promoting conspiracy theories about the protests and watching its audience grow. Everything seems to be on the table, the exception, and it's glaring, Israel's continuing occupation and disenfranchisement of millions of Palestinians. Israel likes to call itself the Middle East's only democracy. The tens, at times hundreds of thousands of protesters there can see that slipping away. The Netanyahu government has put its package of contentious legal changes on hold, but only for a month, hoping to suck the life out of a protest movement unprecedented in size and makeup. It includes military reservists now refusing to show up for duty, threatening to ground parts of the Air Force. The country's primary airport in Tel Aviv was shut down, stranding thousands of passengers, part of a larger paralytic general strike. Israel finds itself in uncharted political territory, its streets occupied by the voices of dissent. The current moment in Israel is uh, unprecedented. Israel is, in general, uh, a fairly conformist um, society, and it's very rare for there to be mass resistance to the government. The scale of resistance and civil society organization that we've seen over the last 12 to 13 weeks is unlike anything that has happened in Israel before. What was really unprecedented is that the head of the biggest Israeli union announced the strike while he was really in cooperation with the largest Israeli industries. Usually they oppose each other and this time they were fully coordinated. The problem of course is that absent in all of these protests has been talk of true democracy. In other words, the protesters, they've been talking about having a democracy for people who are Jewish, but they've excluded more than 50% of their population, which includes Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship and those Palestinians who live in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. They don't care that this regime for Palestinians has been an authoritarian regimes, it hasn't been a democracy because of the fact that they have carried out an occupation now for more than five decades. 
What has not been lost on media analysts is the role Israeli mainstream news outlets like TV channels 12 and 13 played as Benjamin Netanyahu's far-right coalition government came to take power. During the latest election campaign, they failed to sufficiently challenge and thereby normalized politicians like Itamar Ben-Gavir, a Jewish supremacist convicted of multiple hate crimes against Palestinians. <laughs> now that they see the government trying to grab more power, legal changes that would allow a simple majority vote in the Knesset to override court decisions, those outlets have grown more critical, giving the protest movement plenty of airtime. But Israelis are reaping what those channels have sown when they helped normalize the politically abnormal. Itamar Ben-Gavir is now the Minister of National Security and Netanyahu has just promised him his own militia force. Channel 13 had two of the main um, journalist mouthpieces of Netanyahu on air with their own show. And they were bringing on all sorts of conspiracy theorists, talking about how the charges against Netanyahu were fabricated, etc. A few weeks ago, these two journalists left, and now Channel 13 uh, positions itself as sort of a pro-democracy, anti-Netanyahu uh, channel, news channel. But it's more a marketing uh, scheme than a true ideology shift. One of the most uh, prominent examples that I can think about is uh, the TV guest show that's called Ofira Vaberkovitz, which airs on Channel 12. Guests came on um, and called for things like civil resistance and revolution. In a somewhat parodic moment, uh, one of the hosts of the show stood uh, in a moment of silence for the death of Israeli democracy. It's things like this that helped give the protest the mainstream backing, the cultural hegemony, if you will, that it needed. Sometimes comparisons can be unhelpful. Equivalences often prove false. But how else can one describe Channel 14 other than calling it Israel's Fox News? A right-wing, often radical agenda? Check. A taste for conspiracy theories? Check. A penchant for labeling critics of the government enemies of the state? Check. Since the protests began almost three months ago, the ratings of Channel 14's main news program have doubled, overtaking the competition at both Channel 13 and the public broadcaster, Khan. I don't know whether I could call them a news station. They're more of a propaganda station. They spread lies, for example, that the protests have been paid for by foreign governments, especially the United States.
and that the protesters themselves get paid every time they go out, including right-wing politicians who have joined because they care for Israeli democracy. Anyone joining the protests gets immediately labeled as a leftist or worse, a traitor. It's a propaganda machine. Many younger Israelis involved in the unrest take no notice of mainstream media coverage. They prefer social media, both to organize their demonstrations and to tell the story. They wave Israeli flags to ward off critics who call them unpatriotic. And they've been known to take down Palestinian flags when they are raised. That's when the limitations of this pro-democracy movement and the hypocrisy are exposed how vital that democracy is to Israelis when their rights are threatened, and how few of them care about being an occupying power, stealing land, and killing Palestinians at a rate not seen in 20 years. When they were trying to get large numbers of individuals out, they were urging Palestinians to come and join in these protests. But what they ignored is that they're asking us to rally around a flag, a flag that is the very symbol of our oppression, of occupation, of ethnic cleansing. When Palestinians did show up, it was made very clear that these protests were only about Israel. In other words, Israelis want democracy for themselves, but they're fine with Palestinians living under their boot, under their gun, and of course, that's where it needs to change. Expression can take many forms. In Israel, it is there in the sheer number of citizens on the streets, in the signs they carry, the t-shirts they wear, including one that memorializes an Israeli who more than half a century ago saw this coming. A pragmatist who foretold that no country that occupies another's land can expect its own democracy to go undamaged. There was an Israeli philosopher, his name was Ishayao Leibovitch, who said immediately after the 67 war that we should retreat from the occupied territories and return them. He was not that much concerned with uh, Palestinians. What he was concerned about was the corruption of Jewish life in Israel, the corruption of the Jewish soul. He was obviously not listened to, uh, and today many of the protesters come to the uh, protests wearing a t-shirt with his image on it, and what it says underneath it is, I told you so. You know, they see a direct connection between the occupation and where we are today, the evils of occupation. In the geopolitical battle between the United States and China, one of the world's most popular social media sites, TikTok, has been taking a beating and there's no resolution in sight just yet. Meenakshi Ravi has been tracking this story. Richard, Washington sees TikTok, which is owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance, as a national security threat. And the questioning of TikTok's CEO, Shouzi Chu, by the US Congress earlier this month, made for interesting viewing. The Chinese government has that data. How, how can you promise that uh, that, that will move into 
uh, and to the United States of America and be protected here. Central to Washington's suspicion is the access the Chinese state has to user data collected by TikTok. Those suspicions are not entirely unfounded. All social media apps collect data en masse, and there are fewer impediments to Beijing's access to the data than there would be in the United States. Congress has demanded that ByteDance sell TikTok to an American company or risk being banned in the U.S., its largest market. The CEO countered that TikTok's U.S. operations could be hived off and run by the Texas-based IT giant Oracle. Here's how one of the most prominent young members of Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, sees the issue. And they say because of this egregious amount of data harvesting, we should ban this app. However, that doesn't really address the core of the issue, which is the fact that major social media companies are allowed to collect troves of deeply personal data about you that you don't know about without really any significant regulation whatsoever. Ocasio-Cortez has a point. U.S. laws on data harvesting need strengthening and reform. Another under-the-radar angle is that the data privacy and rights of non-U.S. citizens using American-owned social media are much weaker and open to abuse by American officials. But the U.S. Congress doesn't seem too concerned about that. Thanks, Mina. To Greece now, and a surveillance story that just won't go away, despite the government's best efforts. It involves the country's national security agency, the EYP, and a new contentious piece of spying software called Predator. Predator is like a cheaper, less sophisticated version of the Israeli software Pegasus. Dozens of Greeks, including members of Prime Minister Kiriakos Mitsotakis' own cabinet, have been swept up in the spyware net, yet the ruling party denies any culpability and has done little to find the alleged perpetrators. The Greek mainstream media, meanwhile, have stayed mostly quiet on this issue, which is odd since journalists have been amongst those targeted. Exposés produced by smaller, independent news outlets, as well as international ones, have caught the attention of the European Parliament, though, just in time for Greece's parliamentary elections next month. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now from Athens on a spyware story that should be making more news than it is. My phone stopped working properly. It overheated. The battery ran down very quickly. And when I would call someone, they would answer immediately, without it ever ringing. My name is Thanasis Koukakis. I have significant experience in investigative reporting, exposing how the Greek government enables financial crime. I contacted one of my sources to find out if there was something wrong. He said, you're under surveillance by the National Intelligence Service, AIP. That was the moment when Thanasis Koukakis found out he was being spied on by Greece's National Intelligence Service, AIP. He never found out why. The wiretapping by AIP is the legal half of a surveillance scandal that has dogged the Greek government for the past year. The other half, entirely illegal, relates to something called Predator, a new spy software which infects the target's phone through a deceptive internet link. Koukakis was hit by both. I received a text message with a link to a financial news article. I clicked on it and my phone was infected with Predator. My phone was working fine, nothing abnormal. So if it hadn't have been for the reporting by Inside Story, I may not have known anything about Predator's existence. Our involvement in this story began by accident. We saw two reports. 
one from Citizen Lab and another from Meta, the social media platform. Both reports mention Predator and the use of the spyware in Greece. So we at Inside Story focused on how this was happening. For example, a target might receive a text message with a link to an article from fseen.online instead of fseen.gr. And if they clicked on the link, the spy software would immediately be installed on their phone. Kokakis read our piece. He got in touch with Citizen Lab and they confirmed his phone was infected. We then reported his story, exposing that Predator was indeed being used in European territory against a European citizen. Despite the reporting by Inside Story about Koukakis, the surveillance saga only gained traction in the mainstream media after the revelation of a second target, a politician, Nikos Andrulakis. And there was still more to come. A leftist newspaper, Documento, claimed attempts had been made to sweep up dozens more into the spyware net, including various newspaper editors and members of Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis's own cabinet. The implication that the Mitsotakis government was behind some shadowy methods took its toll. With the revelation that uh, Mr. Andrulakis's phone was infected by the um, predator uh, spyware, there was a first resignation of the chief of the prime minister's um, office. He was responsible for monitoring um, APE. And the second one to, um, to resign was the chief of aid. The official line was that they resigned because someone had to take the political responsibility for what happened. It wasn't the intention of the government to indicate that, you know, there was a bit of a complicity to it. But that's exactly what it did. And it wasn't just the high-profile resignations, but the role that Prime Minister Mitsotakis himself has played in this spyware scandal. Soon after his party came to power in 2019, it moved Aip under the direct control of the Prime Minister's office and amended the director's job spec so Mitsotakis could hand-pick the candidate. And just as Thanasis Koukakis was filing a petition to find out why he was surveilled by the state, the government reformed that law so citizens could no longer find out why they were being tapped. This sequence of events is, I would say, telling. I cannot put my finger on uh, the actual culprit because I don't have proof. But look, there is a series of seemingly unrelated events um, which tend to um, compose a specific puzzle um, and if you put all the pieces together one by one and look at it from a distance, then you will realize that possibly um, this was planned. As for the government's narrative on Predator, it keeps changing. First, it said it knew nothing of the spyware. Then it said it did know that Predator existed, but the authorities had nothing to do with it. And then finally, an admission that the government had indeed authorized wiretaps for reasons of national security, but they weren't using Predator and it was all legal. The Ministry for Communication and Information agreed to let us interview the Deputy Minister. We just had to agree on a time. Six days in, we're still waiting. Before we give up on this, we thought we'd try one last time. 
Hi, hi. This is Flo Phillips from the Listening Post at Al Jazeera English. Okay. If you can't make time for us, we're just going to have to say that the minister refused to meet with us. Okay, but I, I didn't tell you that the minister refused to speak. The truth is that the, the minister has fixed interviews right now. If you can't make time for us, we're just going to have to say that the minister refused to meet with us. Now we know how Sophie Untveld felt. She's the European Parliament's rapporteur investigating the use of spyware in the European Union. Like us, she came to Athens to ask some hard questions of the government. Authorities are not willing to share official information with us. Her team got the runaround too. In my opinion, this government is not taking responsibility because nobody is demanding them to. Meaning, mainly the mainstream media. They don't hold the government responsible for so many things. Instead, what we've seen is sustained efforts to obstruct investigative journalism. Whenever someone tries to oppose what the government is promoting as the truth, they're almost demonized. There are many cases where even publicly, even in parliament, the, the, the prime minister has attacked uh, members of the press. A characteristic example is his mention of daily newspaper Documento um, as a national uh, slanderer. It's very hard being a, um, a journalist that actually wants to investigate and expose wrongdoings. The wiretapping case is a victory for small and independent media, as opposed to the mainstream outlets in Greece. And to all those trying to manipulate the press, government, certain publishers and media owners, the message is clear. When journalists do their job, the truth does come out. The truth is coming out, and not just in the reporting of small, independent Greek outlets. The surveillance story has caught the attention of international media too. But the Mitsotakis government isn't taking corrective action in a hurry. It's focused on the upcoming elections in May, hoping that, by then, the story might have lost some of its heat. We are up against a, um, a tsunami of, I would call it, democratic backsliding in this country. The justice system is not as independent as it should be. The media landscape is highly, highly problematic and biased towards one side. And those of us that try to communicate this to a wider audience are often targeted by mainstream media. If it was up to me, the spiral scandal should have been the number one defining factor in the upcoming elections, but um, I don't see it happening. And finally, back to TikTok. What with that five-hour grilling that the company's CEO got at the U.S. Congress and the complex geopolitics involved, the details of what this story is about can get lost. So we're leaving you now with some recommendations of where to go online for good explanatory journalism on the looming TikTok ban and the potential implications for users. This article, published on The Conversation, was written by a cybersecurity expert on the data privacy risks posed by TikTok, examining whether a ban on its use is even possible to enforce. For more of an explainer on the debate between TikTok and U.S. lawmakers, there's this piece on the American entertainment site Polygon. Among the podcasts covering this saga are The Verge Cast. What are the specific concerns that the government has about TikTok? 
and Slate's episode on the case against TikTok. One, that Americans' data could be shared with the Chinese government. And two, that TikTok's algorithm could be used to influence people, say, during an election. On TikTok itself, outlets like The Verge are providing updates on the story as it develops. Check them out while you still can. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.